Please remain standing for today's scripture from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I think I have a new favorite anthem as of this morning uh, by our Sunshine Choir. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace uh, so beautiful and so appropriate to this day, and we're so grateful uh, to you all and Angela for reading our text and to, to God for the second beautiful Sabbath that we've had in as many Sundays. It's a beautiful day to be in God's house with you. Also, because we're beginning a new series this morning in which we're going to highlight some of the distinctives of our faith as a part of the Wesleyan tradition or the Wesleyan lineage, as we call it. And of course, the theme itself gives the series away. Heartwarming is a reference to Mr. Wesley's life-changing encounter that happened in a Bible study in London at a place called Aldersgate Street. He was 35 years of age. He had been an Anglican priest for 13 years, but up until Aldersgate, his faith had been mostly a cerebral thing and not as much heartfelt until May the 24th, 1738. Something happened to Mr. Wesley on that night. Faith became personal. He realized maybe for the first time in his life that God didn't just love the world, God loved him. He realized for maybe the first time in his life that Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the mass. He died for the sins of Mr. Wesley himself. And it was life-changing. When faith becomes personal, mission goes deeper and your witness goes viral. It happened at Aldersgate Street. It happened for Paul on a Damascus road. It happened for me at the age of 16 on a mission trip with youth from a church in South Florida. It happened for Wesley in Bible study. The text we've read is actually an excerpt from the last will and testament of the apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy, who you remember he discovered in mission as a teenager. He discovered this high-capacity young person who became his protege in the faith. And Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell where he's now on death row. The church in Rome is facing persecution at the hands of the new emperor Nero. It's about 64 AD. And Paul at this point, knowing that his days are numbered, is sort of passing the baton to Timothy. In the letter, he reminds Timothy of some of the fundamentals of our faith, some of the essentials of the gospel ministry. Indeed, he encourages us in this text to stay focused 
on the sacred writings. It's interesting how he says that. What's he talking about? He's talking about the Scripture. At the time of Paul's writing, the New Testament had not yet been canonized, so he's talking about the Old Testament. And yet it's clear that Paul now sees the Hebrew Scriptures through the lens of the gospel. It is clear that in Paul's mind, the supreme value of the Hebrew Scripture is that it points to and is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Later, we know that the Holy Spirit will guide the church to include the New Testament oracles as a part of the canon, which we in the church believe today contains all that is necessary for salvation, all that is necessary for faith and practice, as we say. And Mr. Wesley believed this. In fact, isn't it interesting that he often referred to himself as homo unius libre, which means a man of one book. It doesn't mean he didn't read other books. He was, I think, perhaps one of the most well-versed men of the 18th century, but he devoted himself to the Scripture because he discovered that this book was different from all other books in that it has the capacity to draw us into the presence of the living God. Or as one former agnostic philosopher once said, finally, I have found a book that understands me. There's three things that Paul says about Scripture in this text. The first is this, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's an interesting word. You know the word inspiration, inspired? It is a Greek word, a compound word, theonoustos. The prefix theo means God. Noustos means wind or breath. It means God breathed. God breathed, inspiration. Some of you know the name Reverend James Howell. Uh, Jim is our pastor at Myers Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. Tells the story of one day when he enrolled in seminary as a young man, and in his first Bible class, the professor asked him, among 60 other people, Jim, is the Bible inspired? And Jim said, yes. And the teacher said, why? He admits he was clueless at this point, and so he responded with humor. He said, well, I find that very often the Bible agrees with what I think. Thus, it must be inspired. A wiser woman nearby rebutted Jim and said, no, I think the Bible is inspired precisely at those points where it disagrees with what I think. And then a wise guy behind said, yeah, like the passages that say that women shouldn't speak in church. <laughs> I love what A.T. Robertson once said, the 19th century biblical scholar, listen to this, he said, the greatest proof that the Bible is inspired is that it has withstood so much bad preaching. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Well, you don't have to get that vocal about it. Because... <laughs> Inspiration. There's an old cartoon by Charles Schultz. Remember the Peanuts cartoon? This wasn't it. It's a different one. It's a drawing of a young man studying his Bible. He's pouring through the Scriptures. His girlfriend is trying to get his attention, but he waves her off saying these words, don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of Scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. That ain't inspiration. It's perspiration. 
But to say that Scripture is inspired is to say that it isn't merely of human origin, it is of divine origin. The Scripture says this about itself, 2 Peter 1, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men and women spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the image that you have is of a sailboat, and the sail is full of wind as it's carried along by the breath of God. If you believe this, and we do, then we don't approach the Bible as we do other books. We don't come to the text primarily as literary critics to judge its merit. In fact, have you noticed that we don't really critique Scripture as much as Scripture critiques us. I, I can't read the story of the Good Samaritan without being convicted. I, I can't read the story of the prodigal son without seeing myself in it. Sometimes I have been the prodigal, other times the elder, sometimes I've been the loving father, and sometimes I've felt like the fattened calf that got barbecued on the grill. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a scalpel that divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I don't critique it as much as it critiques me. And so we approach the Scripture as Moses approached the burning bush. We turn aside at its glow. We stand for its reading. We take off our shoes in the awareness that we're on holy ground. And with a sense of awe and wonder, we open ourselves to God breathing among us as we are carried along by the Spirit. It's an inspiration. Secondly, Paul says that the Scriptures are for our instruction. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for instruction, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Now, I don't have to tell you this is classroom talk at this point. Students understand this, teaching, reproof, correction, training. In the ancient world in which Paul is writing, the Hebrew Scriptures were the core curriculum for Jewish kiddos. It was also true in the Wesleyan household. The Bible was core curriculum. John Wesley, as a five-year-old, was homeschooled by his mother, Susanna. Susanna and Samuel had 19 children. Ten of them survived. Each one of these children, upon their fifth birthday would sit in the kitchen with their mother. She would teach them on day one, the ABCs, and on the second day, she would start with Genesis 1-1. They would spell out every, every word in the first sentence, and then they would pronounce that verse until they got it right, and then they would move to Genesis 1, verse 2. Timothy was also homeschooled. He learned the word from his mother, 
and grandmother. Anybody remember their names? Lois and Eunice. In fact, the way Paul says it, it's almost like Lois and Eunice weren't just giving the curriculum, they were the curriculum. This is implicit in verse 14. Listen to this. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. You see that? So apparently, it's not just the content of the teaching that matters, it's the conduct of the teacher. Have you ever been there? It's hard to believe in the teaching when you don't believe in the teacher. This is important. This is why it would be very difficult for us to take New Testament from an atheist. It would be interesting. It would be intriguing, but it would not be very helpful. Timothy initially believed in the Scripture because he saw it being lived out at home in Lois and Eunice, and their lives became the syllabus. You see that? A disciple's life actually becomes the curriculum, or as the old folks used to say, you may be the only Bible that some people ever read. In the very next chapter, chapter 4, verses 3 and following, Paul actually warns Timothy about false teachers. Listen to what he says. Look, time's coming when people won't put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own fancies and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. It's our instruction. Anybody remember the name Dr. Albert Outler? One of the greatest Wesleyan scholars in the history of the church who was at Yale before going to Southern Methodist University. We used to call him Uncle Albert. He said of Mr. Wesley, the Bible was his court of first and last resort in faith and morals. Scripture was the primary governing source for his theology, and Scripture was the ultimate criterion by which it and all theologies were to be tested. In fact, Dr. Outler, and this was a part of our confirmation experience with our sixth graders, uh, so you might be smarter than a fifth grader, but probably not than our sixth graders. Dr. Outler was the first one who coined the phrase, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. In his study of Wesley's life and faith, Dr. Outler discovered that Mr. Wesley had essentially four sources that shaped his understanding of God. Scripture, what does the Bible say? Tradition, what has the past church said? Experience, what's our present day understanding? And reason, is it rational? Does it make sense? Outler later said that the mistake we made with the quadrilateral was in thinking that all four sides are of equal weight. Says Dr. Outler, they are not. The quadrilateral is not a square where all sides are co-equal. It is more like a coat hanger. The hook of the hanger is the Scripture. That's what holds the weight. The rest of the triangle that shapes the garment, tradition, experience, and reason, are necessary sources but secondary. 
and says, Dr. Outler, when the church gets this out of sequence, we begin to develop itching ears. Now, I don't want you all to feel alone because you're not the only generation who's ever struggled with this. Every generation struggles with this balance. In fact, in the 20th century, I think that we elevated reason as an authority over Scripture, and we became rationalists. We thought if we can just get educated enough, we can save the world. And ironically, we nearly destroyed the world with nuclear power. Malcolm Muggeridge said, in the second half of the 20th century, we educated ourselves into imbecility, rationalism. Marx called religion the opiate of the people, turns out rationalism was. And please hear me, don't, don't misunderstand, education is critical, and Mr. Wesley held faith and knowledge together as do we. But it is not enough to educate the head without redeeming the heart. It's not enough. In an effort to correct the mistake of the 20th century, I think we've made a new mistake. We have now elevated our experience above all other sources of authority, including Scripture. Experientialism rules the day. My feelings are more decisive than my theology. And that's a slippery slope. Don't take it from me. Listen to Mr. Wesley. He said, and I quote, experience is not sufficient to prove a doctrine that is not found in Scripture. Now, in case anybody gets high and mighty, let me give you a word of caution. This does not give us permission to proof text our way through life. You still have to interpret the Scripture. D.A. Carson said, a text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. Let me say it again. A text without a context becomes a pretext for a proof text. But when we allow a secondary source to assume authority over primary sources, we got trouble. You could say the same thing for tradition. When tradition supersedes Scripture, then the affirmation of the faith becomes, we've never done it that way before. That's the seven last words of the church right there. I think you could even say that if you just take Scripture and ignore completely the others, you're going to become a fundamentalist. My definition of fundamentalism, it's no fun, it's too much damn, and it's very little mental. That's the way you remember it. I think Satan was a fundamentalist. He knew Scripture, and he used it to manipulate Jesus into being someone that he wasn't. Did you know that the devil knew Scripture? Turns out Satan went to vacation church school <laughs> as a little devil. <laughs> and he knew how to use it, but in all the wrong ways, in all the wrong ways. 
Richard John Newhouse, the Catholic scholar, said legalism is a dull heresy peddled by disappointed people who have not received what they had no right to expect. And finally, Scripture, our inspiration, our instruction, it is for our implementation. In other words, you have to apply it. All Scripture is inspired by God, useful for instruction in righteousness, so that every person who belongs to God may be proficient. It's interesting, that word in the Greek is artios, which means to be outfitted. It means to be supplied, equipped, prepared, ready. For example, you don't go on a fishing trip without a pole. You don't go out fishing in the lake without tackle. You don't go to Radnor unless you got your hiking boots. And you don't become a disciple who's serious about discipleship unless you carry what Ephesians 6 calls the sword of the Spirit, which is the Holy Scripture. This is why I think that biblical teaching is absolutely necessary. This is why small group Bible study is not optional so that we'll be equipped to be proficient for the task ahead because it's not enough to learn the Word. We must live the Word. Sometimes we need not just a Bible study, we need a Bible doing. Somebody ever invites you to a Bible doing? Go with him. Two examples, and I'm finished. Last summer, Sherry and I went to Germany for the celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It's a tremendous trip. We went with a group of Lutherans, and we went to the city of Mainz. Some of you have been there. While we were there, we went to an interesting museum, the Gutenberg Museum, and we saw there a replica of the Gutenberg Press. Johannes Gutenberg changed the world in 1455 when he printed the Bible, which is called a 42-line Bible because there are 42 lines with movable print, movable type, and he printed 180 copies of the Scripture. I'm told that each copy, whoever purchased one, and they had to be purchased before they were printed, cost three years' salary. 180 copies. There are still 49 copies in the world that have survived. The last one sold was in 1987 for $5.4 million. Somebody told me the other day they're valued today at $25 to $30 million. That's a lot of money for a Bible. But no matter what you pay for it, it loses its value when it sits under a glass. It loses its worth when it sits on a shelf. But when you contemplate and meditate on the Word, it's priceless and it's proficient. Last word. When the renowned English poet Elizabeth Barrett married Robert Browning, her parents disowned her. Her father was opposed to this marriage, and so they eloped and they moved to Italy. 
And every week, Elizabeth wrote her parents pleading for reconciliation, every week. But she never heard from them. Several years later, she received in the mail a box full of the letters that she had written, and they were all still sealed. They were unopened and unread. If only one of them had been opened, their hearts might have been changed. If only one of them had been opened, but it never was, and there was no reconciliation. When I read that, I realized, church, we have some letters. They're written in a book. They're our inspiration. They're our instruction. And when we open them, we are empowered for the work of reconciliation. And the result is heartwarming. <laughs> It's life-changing because when your faith becomes personal, your mission goes deeper and your witness goes viral. But you've got to open the letter. I've got to open myself to the Word written and living so that we can become the syllabus and the curriculum. This morning, we're invited to a table where you not only hear the Word, you taste it. This is the means of grace. And as you come to this table and taste the Word of God, may, may your faith be stronger. May your mission go deeper and may your witness go viral as we become proficient for the task of ministry. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.